We're going to continue our series on faith. Um, turn with me over to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 11. We started in Hebrews chapter 10 last week, and um, the writer of each book is continuous in his thought. It wasn't written in chapters. The chapters came after the New Testament and Old Testament were written in order for us to be able to find certain verses better. So we started in chapter 10 last week, but that does not separate it from chapter 11 simply because it doesn't fall under chapter 10. The thought is continuous. He was talking about how to overcome last week. And this week he's talking about the nature of faith and how it's inexorably tied to hope. So let's look at Hebrews chapter 11, verses 1 through 2, and then jump to verse 6. It says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, men of old gained approval. Then jump to verse 6. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. Lord, please help us as we study today. Three things on this passage about which I'd like to speak to you. One, the confidence that faith gives us. Two, the conviction that faith gives us. And three, the sense of commendation that comes not only from God, but from those who have already lived this life well. Oh, the writer of Hebrews is working really hard to help these Jewish people to understand how they need to incorporate faith in their life on a regular basis. That it doesn't come by religious rote. It's not just by being Jewish and somehow your genetic heritage is going to give you a leg up in terms of obedience and pleasure with God. That we have to be people that every day respond in, with a measure of faith that allows us to grow and allows the environment around us to be affected by our faith. Faith is that which needs to be living in your life, not dormant. It doesn't need to be expressed only when you decided to give your heart to Christ and then put it on the shelf until you get to glory, hoping that that is going to carry you all the way through. Your faith is that which needs to be felt by people before you tell them you're a Christian. After you tell them, they sh this should be the response of every person who knows you long enough, like two weeks. Of course you are. I knew that. You can't be anything other. You're an amazing human being. That ought to be the response of people. Unfortunately, after you've known somebody six months, too often the response is, really? You're a Christian? Whereby then you incredulously respond, of course I am. Well, see, their response is like, I couldn't tell. Do your good friends know you're a Christian without telling them? Does your faith have a living element to it that allows everybody else to see what you believe? That's one of the reasons you're left here, is to have an impact on the world, to help other people through their difficulties with your faith. The writer of Hebrews is trying to help the people understand what faith is. He said, first, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the assurance, the confidence of things hoped for. And it's not the confidence of things wished for. Wishing and hope are often used as synonyms, but they are not. Wishing usually comes from the in inside of you, not from what we find is biblical precedent. It's what you desire to happen and what you think would be best to, to help frame your future. Wishing usually is based on your desires and not God's. 
Wishing doesn't have a whole lot of foundation in it. It's kind of just a desire. It's really not a hope. And we use hope wrongly. Hope is filled with a whole lot of doubt and unbelief when we say, well, I hope so. I hope it works out okay. That's not biblical hope. That's more like wishing. And God wants us to remove the idea that doubt and unbelief needs to be a part of anything for which we hope. Hope hope just simply allows us to understand that we have not yet experienced that which we believe. And it's out there. But the only way I'm going to get to it is if I have faith that ties me to my hope. Wishing is just all about, well, maybe, maybe. Wishing leads into the kinds of prayers that are not unbiblical, just not as right as they should be. And when we pray prayers that really aren't as biblical as they should be, then generally we get a response from God that's just not favorable. It's not that he's silent. He just says, no, I'm not going to answer that. Which then leads into a moment of disappointment for us. Thinking, well, wait a minute. They got this. I saw my pastor talk about this. I heard him and I saw other people bless. Why not me? Well, you don't know their circumstances. You don't know that through which they've been. You don't know where they are in their maturity. And God likes to take people through different things according to what needs to be worked out in their own soul And let me say this emphatically, God is not fair. When I say not fair, I don't mean that he somehow treats people differently on the basis of their parentage or somehow is unkind to somebody and and, and kind to someone else. I'm saying he chooses not to give blessings to some and give blessings to others based on his divine sovereignty. And so you cannot base how he blesses you on how he blesses somebody else. Do you know how long it took us as a church to get a building? May I say again, God ain't fair. (laughs) 25 years. We met in 33 different locations. When I tell pastors that, they just, they start shivering. They just, huh, you're kidding me. How did you survive? I mean, you can't grow a church like that. I said, I know, but yet God provided. And my journey was not like any of my friends. They all had buildings within five years, not us. And it wasn't as a result of lack of looking. Just God wouldn't let us. We even bought property that we had to sell later, which was a real disappointment for the congregation. Kind of, kind of took a chunk of credibility right out of my leadership. Pastor, you told us this was our spot. And then three years later, you tell us it's not our spot. We invested money in this thing. Well, we didn't lose any money. When we sold it, we made all our money back. But still, was I hearing from God or not? Oh, it was painful. And I was crying out to the Lord, what kind of leader leads his people for 25 years and doesn't have a building? I was trying to figure out how I could justify my quitting, not because I wanted to stop, but because the people deserve better. God's not fair. Boy, he worked so much stuff out of me. How much my security was tied to my idea of success. What I thought needed to happen to make Brett seem legitimate to the rest of the community, to put a stamp of approval on my leadership. Boy, he worked all that out of me. I can't tell you how much I don't care about all that stuff now. I can't, I can't explain it to you how much I don't care about any of that stuff now. 
And it's not whether I'm looking for a stamp of approval from anybody else. I was looking for it for my own soul. God wouldn't let me have it. He said, your security's in me. I can go through all of the therapeutic things through which God took me, but I just want you to know, I don't know anybody who's been on a journey like mine, like our church, and survived. He's just not fair. But he's merciful. Oh, he is so merciful and kind. And I'd rather, I'd rather take his mercy and his kindness than trying to judge myself against somebody else and, and want his fairness. Faith is that which is anchored to hope. And that hope, if it's biblical, gets closer to the reality of being, of being crystallized, whereby you can see it and, and feel it and realize it in the natural. But it can't be on the basis of wishing. It's got to be a biblical hope, a biblical hope. And a biblical hope... First of all, believes in a biblical way. You don't let disappointment or whatever thing that's happened in the past be that which begins to define how you need to think today. God has his wonderful ways of disappointing you royally. He's really good at it. And the reason he does it is not because he's trying to be Machiavellian. He's kind. The reason he does it is he's letting you know, oh, you shouldn't ask for that. Don't ask that way. Change your heart in this thing because your motivations just aren't quite right. And although it might be good for you to have it, it might do you worse if you get it. So I'm not going to give it to you now. I'm going to disappoint you so that you can learn a lesson so that you can be different when I do give you what you need. And when you get what you need, when I give it to you, you will be different in using it and a better steward of the stuff I give. So I'm trying to make you better when you get what you need. The beautiful thing about a disappointment, if you're a disciple, is that it doesn't, it's not a cue. It doesn't somehow cause you to say, I quit. Being disappointed by God is that which is a, a wonderful lesson to say, shouldn't ask that way. Shouldn't ask for that. Okay, I got it. Lesson learned. And what it's like is God takes this big trunk that is you. And he begins the process of whittling it down. Taking all of your desires away. Because you don't know how to ask. You don't know for what you need to ask. And, and you won't know until you, until you keep growing through. But God's trying to get you to the place. And I want you to listen to me on this comment. He's trying to get you to the place that if you mature rightly and you live long enough in that maturity where you can actually say this by way of testimony, not hope. I get what I want. Now, because we realize that we don't ask right, that statement without context, everybody goes, I don't know if I can say amen to that, Pastor. What do you mean? If you get whittled down so much by disappointment and him not answering what you wanted, not giving you what you desired, then what's left is that which Psalm 34 verse 7 tries to convey. It says, God gives us the desires of our heart. Now, most people interpret that as he gives people what they want. Hmm? I don't know. Can't find that enough in Scripture. There is that passage a couple of, couple of times Jesus said, ask anything in my name and I'll give it to you. And that, that seems to be, you know, pretty, pretty all-encompassing. 
except that you understand that when you ask things in his name, you're asking for things that fall under the authority of what he has already designed for you to have. That he's not going to endorse anything with his name that shouldn't be for you. So it's not like you can just pray anything you want and slap the name of Jesus on it at the end of your prayer and it's going to happen. It's not a magical formula. This is a relationship. This truly happened. The guy's not not part. He came to me 20 years ago. Walked in my office, got an appointment with me. He said, Pastor, I'm glad to meet with you today. I have something that's really burdened on my soul I want to talk to you about. I said, great. What do you, what do you? He said, well, I believe the Holy Spirit has told me to divorce my wife and marry my new girlfriend. <laughs> that happened. When you pastor long enough, you get some strange things that come to you. And I looked at him and said, well, you came to the right brother today. And I'm going to help you. First of all, you need to repent. That is not God. You're not hearing from him. And don't slap the name of Jesus on that stupidity. He's not endorsing that. You can't just ask for what you want and be, be in lack of observance of Scripture or something that may not be against Scripture but may not be in your best interest and you don't know it. What you need to do is live long enough to enjoy the fact that God told you no 10 years ago. I am so happy about no's now because I've lived long enough with enough no's to say, oh, that was good. So if he's telling me no now, I know in 10 years I'm going to be happy. I may be bad now, but in 10 years I'm going to be really happy. I can't tell you how happy I am with this property. I got told no so many times with property. So many times. And I am so happy I got told no. Little pieces of property, beautiful veils in neighborhoods, and they were nice. But 95,000 cars go by this building every day on 28. I am so happy he told me no. So happy he told me no. You need to live long enough and enjoy your disappointment because all he's doing is whittling you down to wanting only what he wants so that you live long enough whereby you, you submit to the whittling that all that's left is the desires he has put in your soul because he gave you the desires of your heart. Then you're able to say this, I can ask for what I want because all I want is what he wants. Disappointment is tuition. It's on the way learning to what you need to ask for. Don't let disappointment discourage you. It's a marker for where hope is. Secondly, you don't need to let your circumstances, your present circumstances, disturb you. Circumstances are those which inform us about how we need to believe best. It says of Abraham in Romans chapter 4, during his journey of trying to figure out what inheritance looked like in the promised land and what that was supposed to be for his descendants, that he, he, he knew God was going to give him a child. Because he had no descendants when he came in, yet God said, I'm going to give this property to you and your descendants. So he had hope that he would actually have a child. The problem was this. He was 75 when he came into the promised land, and his wife was 65. I think we can safely say that that's just a little bit beyond the ideal target range for, for childbearing. 
So they were already beyond the, the place where everybody thought they would be ready to bear a child. Everybody was thinking, oh, too late. And then they go 10 years in the promised land. They still haven't had a child. And, and they're trying to figure out how this thing is supposed to work with descendants. Maybe we are being disobedient. And so they come up with this plan whereby Sarah, Abram's wife, has a maidservant named Hagar. And she says to Abram, since I'm not able to bear a child, now I'm 75 and you're 85, why don't you go into my maidservant, have a child, and I'll accept him as my own. And therefore, you can at least have some descendants. Now, before you begin to judge Abram as being really messed up for doing that, saying yes to it, even though you know it's Sarah's idea, every woman says, well, Abram should have said no. He should have just believed God. Okay, I get it. But that was the standard by which all people made decisions with respect to barrenness. That's what everybody did. Everybody. So it was normal. And we can't judge them by our standards in Western society, 2018. So he did it, and they had a child named Ishmael. And Abram was happy. Sarah, not so much, because Hagar began to, to feel herself a little bit, and she started being really nasty to her mistress, and it didn't work out well. A few years later, about 12 to be exact, God comes to Abraham and says, I'm going to give you a boy. Abram says, I already got one. His name is Ishmael. Now, from this point, backward to when Ishmael was born, Abram, we believe, had been telling his son, this land's yours. That's all he knew. That's all he knew. He said, I'm going to give it to your descendants, and Ishmael's my descendant, so he must mean Ishmael because my wife can't have any kids. So he had been pouring the promises of God into Ishmael. And then God comes to Abraham and says, you're going to have a son. He said, I got one. He said, no, through Sarah. He said, oh, that Ishmael might live before you. He said, the promise is coming through Sarah. Now, he responded just like every other, every other man who was on Social Security would respond when he realizes his wife is pregnant. Uh, oh, I, what? I, are you? We've done this. We've, I, I'm too old for this. But he's not thinking about his wife, and he's not thinking about the promise. And so Sarah gets pregnant, and she has a child. And wow, what a deal. Now listen to me. God told him, I'm going to bring this promise through you to your descendants. And he made it, made it very clear. He, he specified at year 86, 80, 75, year 86 on the calendar for Abraham that he's going to do it somehow through Sarah. Or maybe 99. Somehow through Sarah. It says that Abram believed God in Romans chapter 4 in hope against hope. Meaning every day that passed while Sarah was in the promised land, it seemed to be that it was one day further from the possibility of her having children because all she was doing was getting older being further away from the natural ability to be able to bear a child. Every day seemed that way. And his present circumstances began to help define what he needed to do. And so from the age of 65 to the age of 99 for this dear woman, he was trying to figure out how he could make it happen just for him and not her. But they were partners in the thing. And it says that God began the process 
of producing in Abram a hope that went against all hope in the natural. And every time you begin to look at your circumstances, and maybe not every time, just 99.9% of the time, when you begin to look at your circumstances, rarely are they those that confirm the word of God. They are usually those that tell you it's not going to happen. And every day you go beyond that which God spoke to you in the past makes it seem as if you're further away from anything that's supposed to happen happening. Reality was this. Abraham and Sarah, every day they woke up, were one day closer to it coming to pass. Not one day further away. And every day you wake up in faith, even if you have your moment of lapse, and God is good with moments of lapse, he understands humanity. He doesn't like the moments when we flow into doubt and unbelief, but he understands it. The beauty is this. Abram had a moment of lapse. Sarah had a moment of lapse. They all blew it at some point. But God broad brushed the entire thing in the New Testament by saying this man did not waver in unbelief. How about God not sharing your dirty laundry with the world? How about him not exposing you to everybody, telling everything you did wrong? And looking over the broad spectrum rather than your one mess up. How about that? That's the goodness of our God. It doesn't mean that he didn't have a moment. It meant if I looked from beginning to end, there was nobody who obeyed me like him. But he had to believe in hope against all natural hope. And God wants to give you that kind of hope. A hope that cannot be defined by your present circumstances. And in fact, your present circumstances tell you it can't happen. But those circumstances are supposed to be those which aid you in the process of understanding now, how must my faith engage so I can hold on to my hope? You can't let hope sprout wings and fly away. It'll do that. Your disappointment and your circumstances will tell you no reason to hope. Common vernacular is, don't get your hopes up. You know, believe for the best, expect the worst. All the statements we use to guard our heart, please understand. I don't want to be difficult. Grow up. Grow up. We are called to swim upstream. Disappointment, again, is not the end. It's a sign of how we need to course correct. God isn't done with you simply because you don't have everything you need now. You keep going on the same track. Stay on the road. Don't exit early. And you hope against hope, engaging your faith, saying it is worth it today to stay on this road because I know my God has said, and if he has said, he will do. He doesn't lie. So every day I get, every day I get up, I am one day closer to seeing his will come to pass in my life. All I have to do is stay on this road. And then you, you need to let hope inspire you to do things, not just hope in a certain way, inspire you to do things. Believe God for your personal life and believe, listen, God wants... God wants you to get beyond 
just always thinking about yourself. I mean, if we were to roll a videotape, which they don't use anymore, shows my age. If we were to take an MP3 and just roll it around in your brain and go back a little bit and, and, and kind of rehearse and look at all the prayers you prayed, 90% of them I better be about you. I'm not accusing you. I'm in the same boat. God, I need this. Lord, I need help here. My family needs to It'd be about my own life. I, I, that's why I got a prayer list. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. I got different things for which I pray. I can't hit everything on one day. It'd take me all day to pray, and I wouldn't do anything for you. So I hit on Monday my family, on Tuesday my friends and foes, on Wednesday my staff, on Thursday the Washington Redskins because I'm the chaplain. I'm not praying for them to win games but to get saved. <laughs> on Friday I pray for my missionaries. On Saturday I pray for my every nation world. On Sunday I pray for you. And I started all over again on Monday. That's how I structure my life so that I'm not always focused on me because I'm looking at me every day. I feel me every day. I know my needs every day and I can't just focus on me. We have to begin to think more about others if we're going to advance the kingdom. It's not about you. And the beauty is this. When you begin to think about others more than yourself, it's amazing how God cares for you. Amen. There are very few people who ever really think about others before themselves. And so when he finds somebody who does, all he wants to do is pour out all the stuff on it because I can't find anybody who's concerned about my kingdom like you are, willing to sacrifice yours for them. Wow, don't worry about it. You keep sacrificing for them, I'll provide for you. That's what God does. He said, seek first, Matthew 6, the kingdom of God, and all these things, what you will eat, what you will drink, what you will wear, all the provision will be given to you. We need to begin to, to hope for biblical things. Yes, the will of God in our lives, but the will of God in other people's lives. Mm. And then there's, then there's conviction. So we start with the, the, the idea of what it means to be confirmed and to have the, the, the assurance of things hoped for. And then there's conviction. He said it's the conviction of things not seen. Faith is not blind. It just sees different things. We don't take our cue on what we see in the natural as people that are engaging our faith to see circumstances change for others and ourselves. We don't. We don't ignore the natural. The natural actually informs us about how our faith needs to engage. But we believe that our faith can actually either change the circumstances or change us toward the circumstances. Maybe even a combination of both. But something is going to change as a result of my faith. Jesus obviously needed no character development. And so whenever he met with an obstacle that was, seemed naturally insurmountable, the obstacle moved. He... He, he saw a, 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 a caravan led by a hearse on 28. And, and it was stopped at a light down here at Centerville Road. And, uh, in Centerville, I don't, know what's, what, I don't know what that means. Anyway, it was stopped. And, and he went to the back of the hearse and said, uh, excuse me, could you get up, boy? Now, this happened in the Bible where there was a woman at Nain who was a widow and she only had one son. And there was a funeral procession leading out of the city to bury him. Jesus didn't even, he, he wasn't even asked by somebody. In other words, for him to fix this was beyond anybody's faith at that moment. He just saw 
a widow who was bearing her only son. And his heart broke. If you were a widow, it was bad because there were no economic opportunities for you. None. But if you were a widow without a son, it meant now you had to do all the hard labor and you were 60. If anything broke in the house, you had to fix it and you didn't know how to do it. You had nobody to do the heavy lifting. You had nobody to go out and earn resources for you. You were destitute. Jesus recognized the circumstance, opened the hearse, said, boy, please get up. And the boy was raised. Where is faith like that? Where is it? Jesus wasn't concerned about himself. He was concerned about others. Now, some of you say, well, do miracles like that really happen today? Not often. Not often. But they do happen. I have some friends that have seen some, some amazing things. People raised from the dead. Dwarfs that grow. That was wild to me. A friend of mine in India, a person came who was, what is the unoffensive way to talk about little people? I don't want to offend little people. And he was three foot nine, 25 years old. The man prayed for him, and they had a measuring stick by him. So you could see him on the picture how tall he was. And after they prayed for him, they put the measuring stick by him, and he was 5'2". I mean, just, you just, you just, your mind just, did that how, how, what, that's, and you're thinking, why didn't you go to 6'4"? <laughs> just keep going. Amen, amen, and neither was he, neither was he. God does stuff. He does stuff. I've been fortunate to see a few miracles in my life, both done on me and those for which I have prayed. Not as regular as I would like, and I'm believing for it. But my faith needs to be engaged beyond me so I can help others. And the conviction of things not seen. Jesus was able to see that which others did not. All they saw was pain and mourning and loss. Jesus saw life after death. Lazarus. Nobody thought that man could be raised from the dead. It had been four days. He'd been four days and he had been dead. The process of decay had taken over. And he comes to the, to the grave and says, come out. And it was so awkward. Lazarus was hopping because he was wrapped in grave clothes. He couldn't even walk. He had to literally hop his way out of the tomb. We know that to be the case because Jesus said when he appeared at the front of the tomb, he said, unbind him. So he was still mummified. I don't even know how all that works, but I know this, it does. Our faith needs to be engaged for others. And I'm a big apologist, meaning somebody who believes in defending the faith with logical arguments based on the evidence of God being in the earth. And I, I know he is real. Even if I didn't have my Bible, the world would tell me he is real because of the evidence that is there. So I'm big on that. But I also know that as much as I try to refute the lies out there that confirm atheism and agnosticism and other religions, there is nothing that convinces somebody quicker than a miracle. 
It says, Jesus said, these signs will follow those that believe. They will speak with new tongues. They will cast out demons. They will perform miracles. If they tread upon serpents and scorpions, it will not hurt them. I mean, the miraculous ought to follow the preaching of the word. It ought to be normal. And I haven't seen it as normal in my life as I'd like, but I'm pursuing it. That is the accompaniment all of us ought to have on a regular basis. Are you listening to me? This isn't just for the clergy. This is for you. This is how your faith needs to be engaged. You need to have the accompaniment of the supernatural. Hmm. We, have a, we had a great worship and song experience this morning, didn't we? That was great. Our youth just did a fabulous job. I'm so grateful. I'm, I'm, I'm beginning to close. These dear people, it, it, great voices. You, I'm, I'm just so impressed. But if they were the only ones up here singing without all of the accompaniment of the music, all of you all would say, nice, but something's missing. Where are the players? Great voices. We're doing the acapella thing today. Okay, that's fine. Hallelujah. (laughs) So you would have to justify in your own mind as to why the other folks weren't on stage. Must be a special Sunday. Well, that's what all of heaven is thinking about us. We're supposed to have the accompaniment of the supernatural, yet we're living a cappella. They're saying, it's supposed to, great voices, fabulous, but it's supposed to sound different, isn't it? I just, why are they missing the rest of the, huh? Okay, hallelujah. <laughs> Lastly, commendation, it says that the men of old gained approval by this faith. (laughs) That passage doesn't just mean that they gained approval from God, but but it also means this, that they gained the witness that living by faith was the best way to live. Not living by deeds. Now, I want you to hear the difference. Living by faith means that you are trusting in Christ for your righteousness to be extended from him to you and that you are not trusting in your own deeds to be those which commend you before God as entrance into heaven and, and, and on the basis of your own righteousness. Good deeds need to be done, but they are best done when they are the evidence of the righteousness that God has given to you as, as a result of faith. And then you are proving that you are right, been made right by God by what you do. But when you try to use your deeds as those that commend you before God as being worthy of heaven and thereby being right, because the only people who can go to heaven are those that are completely right, not just half right, not more right than Hitler. And we judge ourselves by the absolute worst in order to make all of ourselves feel better about ourselves. Wrong comparison. We need to compare ourselves with he who is perfect. Jesus is the only one who lived it right. Anybody else? Guilty. You got, a, you got a rap sheet. Longer than all the gigabytes in the world can, can, can contain. You've done so much stuff wrong, said so much stuff wrong, thought so much stuff wrong, and all of it is really wrong. And if God were to pile up all of our offense as evidence of, of the kind of guilt that should be ascribed to us and thereby the consequence of judgment 
we would be overwhelmed. Overwhelmed. Because all of us have blown it beyond our capacity to repair. And just like in our jurisprudence system, you can't fix your bad deeds with your good. If you knock off a 7-Eleven, you can't go before the judge and say, but I brought some turkeys to the old folks home at Thanksgiving. You're going to jail. You're going to jail. You can't fix your bad deeds with your good. God did it for us by living right, 100% right. Jesus Christ was able to take the whooping that was ours. So he took our death when he didn't deserve it because he had done nothing wrong. And that is critical to the idea of redemption. Because if he deserved death, then he deserved death because he sinned. And we are all hopeless. There is no hope for us then. This means that the, the whole idea of Christianity is dependent upon one thing. One. Did he rise from the dead? Because if he rose from the dead, then that meant death could not hold him. Why couldn't death hold him? Because he did nothing to deserve death. That meant he lived a perfect life. Had anybody ever done that before? No. That meant that he was supernatural. Not just man born from Adam because only Adam could produce Adam. Meaning that Adam could only produce what he was. He couldn't produce anything else. And so Adam was a sinner. He made other sinners. And that's how we got to be the way we are. And sin is not just that which is realized or, or comes into effect when somebody does wrong. Sin is that which we inherit genetically. Parents know this to be true. Before you can teach a child to do wrong, or he's learned it on TV, he does wrong. You never have to teach a child how to be selfish. Anybody? You have to teach them to say mine? I don't know where my kids learned it, but they learned it. Quick. Right after mama, daddy, mine. You don't have to teach them to, 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 to slap somebody. You don't have to teach them to, to be mean, but you do have to teach them to love, be kind, share. If mankind is really good and getting better, shouldn't we have worked this out over the thousands of generations by now? And yet, the same baby keeps coming out of the womb. <laughs> Sin is inherited from Adam. That's all he could produce. So how did Jesus get to be where he was? He was a son of God and man. And his divine nature allowed him the privilege of living perfect while he experienced everything just like we experienced it, yet without falling. Perfect victory. He demolished the foe. And thus was able to be the substitutionary benefit for us. Now he took our death because he didn't deserve to die. He could take our death and we don't have to suffer the consequences of our misdeeds. And we can live for him forever. Wow, it's great. We get his life. He took our death. It's not a fair exchange, but I love it. Our whole faith rests on the fact that he rise from the dead. And there is more evidence that Jesus rose from the dead naturally than there is that George Washington was the first president of the United States. As I said, I love apology. The defending of the faith, I read a lot. More evidence. So you have to deny the evidence naturally and logically to hold on to your lack of belief. 
when we talk about commendation. These men who have lived before, they received the kind of approval not only from God, but they give the witness to us that this is the best way to live by faith. It's not as a result of our good deeds. Our good deeds are to reflect our faith, not to be the substitution for our faith. And as a result, boy, we live by faith. The beauty is this, that when we do so, God finds pleasure with us. He says it is impossible to please him without faith. Most folk just want to use their faith to get to heaven. Try to use your faith differently. Bring a smile to his face every day. Have the sense that when you lay your head on the pillow every night, that you get the privilege of hearing, well done. Well done. Proud of you today. We moved the ball of the kingdom in your family, in your personal life. Somebody else got help. Good job today. I'm proud of you. Faith pleases God makes them happy because somebody is believing what they don't see in the natural but they see in the spirit and they're trusting that he is invading their life for good and helping to invade the world for better can you say amen Amen. live by faith Lord help us as we try to do your will best all we want to do is just be used by you to make the world better that's all that's all God 